singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. Before we begin our show today, I would like to remind our regular viewers and listeners that if you guys all enjoy the show, feel free to express your support in one of two ways. Number one, it will be very appreciated if you take a minute and write a very brief review on iTunes for the show. This is a fantastic way to spread the word and improve the awareness of other people of all those uh, technology and exponentially growing um, related topics that we discuss uh, on this show. Number two is, of course, simply go on on our donations page and feel free to contribute any funds uh, you feel appropriate. And it goes without saying that everything would be used to improve and make this show bigger and better so that we all benefit from it. So now that we have this out of the way, uh, let me welcome our guest on the show today, John Smart. Welcome, John. Thank you, Nicola. It's wonderful to be here. I've uh, thought about getting on your show for a while, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been thinking about getting you and inviting you on the show for a while myself, too. So for those of our viewers and listeners who are not familiar with John, um, John Smart is a technology foresight educator and a scholar in in global processes of evolution, development, and accelerating change. He's a president of the Acceleration Studies Foundation, and professor and program champion for the Emerging Technologies Master's Program at the University of Advanced Technology in Tempe, Arizona. He's also an advisor in the Future Studies and Forecasting Program at Singularity University, where I actually got to meet John, even though very briefly, last summer when I was there. Uh, So did I miss anything important? I know you have a very diverse background with a wide spectrum of personal and professional interests, so what well, would you like to add? The only thing I would add to that, Nicola, is um, a group of us in the Foresight community who run the Foresight Universities uh, uh, master's programs, um, of which, as you say, I, I'm running one of them um, in Arizona. Um, and it's an online program, so I run I run it from Mountain View where, in California, where I live, and Uh, We decided to get together and um, try and support the Foresight students better at these 22 programs uh, that exist around the world where you can get a master's or a PhD in Foresight. And um, also the certificate programs. There's about 10 really good certificate programs and Singularity University, of course, is the number one, I would say, of all the Foresight certificate programs you can take. Certainly the most... uh, highest quality uh, students coming in, the biggest aspirations, and of course it's got Ray and Peter behind it, so uh, uh, it's a wonderful program. So what FERN, Foresight Education and Research Network, does is we try and help students who graduate with uh, uh, degrees and certificates from these programs get better foresight jobs, get uh, improve the uh, foresight careers. So. Um, we're building a network of all of the uh, database of all of the um, places where uh, that hire uh, people with foresight backgrounds. And there's a lot of what I call foresight, foresight by other names going on, uh, strategic planning, uh, trend analysis, uh, prediction markets, um, 
scenarios, risk management. Uh, um, there's a number of modeling. There's a number of different things people do that really they all fall under foresight and the people that do it aren't necessarily called foresight professionals. So we want to raise the quality of foresight education by networking up the students of all these programs. Uh, we currently have a LinkedIn group, uh, a Fern LinkedIn group, and uh, um, we're planning a conference. Um, it's going to be called Foresight Careers. And basically it's a way for Foresight grads to speed date with all these uh, potential uh, employers, uh, get good internships, um, find out what the companies are looking for, and then uh, start to tailor their experience more toward what the companies need. So that's that's fantastic for for our viewers and listeners. I think that's a very valuable information and a potentially super valuable resource. Um, and actually, it could be very important for me personally because I still haven't managed to turn the blog into a business or in a financially self-sustaining venture. And of yeah. course, I have goals and plans and ideas how I'm to accomplish that within by the end of the year, hopefully. Nice. But uh, I might actually uh, need to investigate that myself. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, if you go to FernWeb, F-E-R-N, like the plant, web.org, you'll see our website and the list of the projects we have there. Um, a publications community is one, try and help people get published in more journals so that they're more easily um, discovered. Um, resources to help people make money speaking about foresight, uh, writing, blogging, um, of course, working in companies, um, so the idea is to create a network that really supports professionalism in the space, starting with the students, because you guys have just been through this this program, and or many of you are still in the, these programs, and uh, uh -huh. you know you're seeing you're seeing and reading and thinking about so much stuff. Uh, really important thing is having a strategy that works, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And and because we're so sort of advanced in our area of interest it's a very new field it's very hard to to apply it at least for me i find it you know i've been actually blogging and doing the podcast for over two years now maybe two and a half years mm -hmm. and i've met some of the most incredible people in the world both on the podcast and at singularity university i've learned really incredible uh, things that have changed my mind uh, and, and my, my life and, and my perspective on the universe if you will but so far, I'm I am failing to to find a way to to really take it to the professional level in the sense that it generates revenue. <laughs> so I yes. think perhaps yes. you could claim I am professional in the sense that the amount of time that I spend is easily eight and above eight hours per day, usually six or seven days a week, uh, <laughs> for the yeah. past two or three years. But uh, the the financial end of things hasn't arrived yet even though i'm optimistic so uh, sure well so you see um i got a bunch of books here in my library in fact uh, um i share this library with the singularity students every year i truck it over at the beginning of the graduate studies program because it's a futurist library of i don't know maybe two three thousand books that uh i consider particularly valuable for uh, thinking about and 
of the future and empowering your personal future. And so I might get up and grab a few during our conversation here. Um, sure. One I'm going to mention is called Creating Better Futures. Or sorry, Creating Your Future by Morrissey. Mm -hmm. Now, this is uh, probably the best book on personal strategic planning and personal foresight that I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, there's a website run by a colleague called personalfutures.net. And uh, if you go to per personalfutures.net, you'll see Vern Wheelwright's recommendations for the best books, which includes uh, Morrissey's Creating Your Future, and um, which is quite old. Um, I think it's 15 years old, but uh -huh. clearly head and shoulders, in my opinion, above all the others. And then Vern has several of his own uh, free ebooks and other things available on the website. So, Nicola, I think part of it comes down to if we have clear vision and if we have a strategy that works and we're motivated to execute that strategy, we get what we want. We have to measure it. We have to uh, envision the thing that's going to be the fit best with our passions and our talents. And then we have to describe ourselves in a way that is uh, most understandable to other people with, mm -hmm. re with relation to the problems that they're trying to solve. Yeah. So if you think about uh, the need for foresight, you should start with the need for planning. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to have a plan. I mean, you want to get through the, you know, you get through the future, you get, you get through your life much better by having a plan and knowing where you're going. Businesses that do strategic planning uh, survive a lot longer after five years. There was a nice study on that. Uh -huh. um, and you also want to plan light and plan often. So you don't want to do a plan once a year that goes on the shelf that takes, you know, two months to, to make. Uh -huh. You want to plan at least once a quarter. And you want to do it over, you know, a day or, you know, at most a weekend. And what do you think? Okay, I need a plan. Well... If you need a plan, you also need to know what things are predictable. Futurists like to talk about the predictable, the futures that we discover that are built into the universe, like the laws of physics, right, or the laws of social change, or technology acceleration, or Moore's law. These are things we discover, and they look they look pretty predictable. They look like they're built into the way the system works. Then there's things that we create. Uh -huh which are very unpredictable. We're all trying our entrepreneurial efforts, right? Yeah. And then there's the things that we um, manage, which is really a blend in the middle of, of uh, creating and predicting, isn't it? And so if you're building your personal plan, you need to have a little bit uh, at the front end of that um, of discovery of the things, the tidal waves that are coming at you, whether you want them or not. Uh -huh. That's, that is the prediction side of futures, and so that's trend analysis and um, technical intelligence. Who's doing what? In what labs? What works? What's hype? We've got some nice books here on technical intelligence. Yeah. I think this is my favorite, uh, Keeping Abreast of Science and Technology. Technical Intelligence is the subtitle, and there's people that are specialists in this, and if you hire those people... Uh, to give you inputs to your plans, you're going to know what's coming at you. Mm -hmm. And then and then on the front end, so you've got planning. On the front end, we've got forecasting and uh, uh, predictable futures. And then on the front end of that, we've got alternative futures. And that's the other part of foresight. Uh, what could happen? 
So let's generate some scenarios. Yeah. Let's uh, brainstorm. Let's do some visioning. What could hit us? And uh, you'll find companies with big planning departments, smaller forecasting departments, and then their foresight departments, the smallest of all. But you really should have folks doing all of those things if you're serious about planning at the organizational and at the personal level, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. John, that's, that was all very, very valuable information, not only for our viewers and listeners, but also very much to me personally. So I appreciate that. But I'd like uh, to sort of uh, relaunch our discussion by going a little bit further back in time and starting and focusing things on you. So let me ask you this. Um, how was it and why was it that you got interested in futurism and technology? And which one was first? Well, uh, I, I was a little kid. I was five years old and I was sitting in a line with my parents in some boring line at a um, DMV or something. And, you know, they wouldn't let me go away and, and walk around because it was some large, cold, you know, uh, bureaucratic place. I remember the marble and the tall walls and, uh, and I had to figure out something to do with my mind. And I remember thinking, well, I can think about the future because that's hard, at least for me. And it's a fun game and I can start telling stories about it and asking my parents, what do they think of these stories? And so that pretty much launched it for me. And from that point forward, I had a little game I could play. You know, where are we going? You know, what's happening next? You know, and I um, kind of came to realize that there weren't that many people playing the game. Um, a lot of people didn't think there was any value in it. A lot of people didn't think there were even predictable things. Um, and um, I didn't make it my career. I went into business, got a bachelor's degree from Berkeley, and then went into uh, got a second bachelor's almost. Um, I did what's called um, post-baccalaureate studies for two years, two and a half years at uh, University of uh, California, San Diego in molecular biology, mm -hmm. a number of other basic sciences. And then I went and started a business, a test prep business um, called Hyperlearning. So that was uh, science, started with science tutoring, and then it went into MCAT and LSAT and SAT, these standardized tests and with a partner. A uh, really brilliant guy, uh, mathematician, and um, sold that, went to medical school, did two years, and I kind of realized the thing that interested me the most about medical school was these uh, AI in medicine classes. I kind of, I went in thinking that there were going to be all these things that were going to change the world um, on the neurology side. So my essay was all about, I'd love to see if we can come up with a uh, uh, I'd love to be involved in clinical neuroscience research and see if we can come up with a drug that lets us remember, you know, 10 times better or something that preserves our brain plasticity like a 20-year-old when we're 50. So when we get kicked out of work by a machine, which I said in my essay, right, uh, this 50-year-old can go back and, and relearn. And so I was focusing on the brain side of the equation. How can we improve the brain? Uh -huh. And it was really only in my second year of medical school that I kind of came to realize that uh, the body doesn't work that way. Uh, you go in and try and fiddle with this thing from the top down, um, it's going to resist you. Uh, all the easy things evolution's already discovered, 
Uh, if you came up with a drug that gave you better memory, as they've done with mice, there's going to be all these other side effects that make it probably unusable. Um, it's just very, very hard to fix that system from the top down. You could fix it from the inside out, but you'd have to understand what you're doing. And of course, we don't have the AIs to figure that out. It's ridiculously hard. And then I was looking on the computer side and I was seeing these incredible accelerations. Um, this was the late 90s. Um, and it just kind of came clear to me that the, the levers that really were moving the world were at a lower level. They were in this area I call inner space, nanotechnology, information technologies. And if I really wanted to get back to my primary love of understanding the future, um, it was in that space. So I took a deep breath and realized that's really what I needed to do. So I went off and got a, uh, um, you don't get a master's if you leave medical school without your, you know, uh, degree, right? And without doing the clinical stuff. But um, you get a master's equivalent. You can't call it a master's. A few universities allow you to, but uh -huh. UCSD, where I went, doesn't. So I have a master's equivalency in physiology and medicine. And uh, just like I did a second bachelor's, now I realize I need to do a second master's. And this time it was in foresight. So I went to the University of Houston, which is the oldest program. Started in 1975 in the Apollo era heyday. Wow. Um, anything could happen in the world. So we better have a foresight program. It was started right next to Johnson Space Center in Houston. Uh, if you go out there, you get to see, you can see the Apollo, the titans of that age, these huge, you know, Saturn V and other uh, craft, lunar lander mo models sitting out there uh, um, at the Space Center. And of course, that's where they train astronauts in the pool, you know, for the ISS and things like that. Um, and uh, Really, a lot has happened since. Uh, space didn't turn out the way a lot of people originally thought, and I think that's for important reasons. I think that's because the acceleration we're discovering, the real acceleration is in this inner space world. Uh, the computers that were on the um, Apollo missions were, you know, um, just a tiny fraction of the complexity of this thing I've got in my pocket, right? Yeah. So things are going into inner space. And in fact, human brains did that. This thing right here is an incredible example. 100 billion neurons with 100 trillion unique synaptic connections. Most complex inner space thing we know. But we're, dive down, we're diving down and we're going to create something that rivals and surpasses that in the technology space. So that's the story that I realized I needed to try and tell better. And then when I got into the profession and got my degree, I started to realize, well, the classes that are being taught, they're really not what I would call Excel-aware, you know, acceleration-aware. They're not recognizing enough just how fast things are going. You know, we need people out there, graduates with masters and PhDs who study this stuff all over the world in all kinds of fields who, when, you know, a politician says Social Security is going to be busted, going to be broken in 2060, uh, or 2050, and if, if they aren't saying in the same breath, you know, robots are going to be wiping your ass in 2050 <laughs> when you're sitting on your john, right? <laughs> Sorry, your toilet. <laughs> if they if they aren't recognizing the level of automation and productivity, the natural what Bob Solo calls technical productivity of the machines themselves in that world, 
Well, all of their foresight models aren't Excel-aware. They're not getting the big picture. And as you, I'm sure, know, we spend maybe a $3 billion a year on basic information technology R&D through the, um, I forget the name of, uh, I think it's called NITRD is the name of the office that the U.S. channels most of its basic science for infotech R&D money. And the National Nanotech Initiative, on the nanotech side, we spend, again, about $2 billion a year. These are pittances. If nanotech and infotech are the primary drivers of our acceleration to inner space, like I've, like I've written, then uh, we aren't getting it. The, the China, which has a GDP one-fifth the United States, as of last year, is spending more money on basic nanotech R&D than the United States. And there's something wrong with that. Our politicians, you could say, oh, well, that's because, you know, the Chinese have uh, engineers running their country, you know, it's not a fair comparison. Well, <laughs> back in the 60s and 50s, we had a whole lot of engineers and technical advisors uh, who were uh, being taken seriously by government. But if you, as a futurist, you have to look, what are the big changes that, that, that affect everything and what's happened in the U.S. in the last 50 years? So, so let me stop you here for a second and let me ask you this, though. It's kept us from going in the a direction where we recognize it, where we, where we keep our engineers at the level that we did in the 50s. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating story, John. And, and I want to ask you, so you've mentioned that the classes and courses that are currently being taught are, in your opinion, not Excel or where... No. Well, they weren't, they weren't enough, so we decided to create this organization to share curriculum, right, and mm -hmm. get, get the students and the, the educators meeting each other on a regular basis. So is that organization that you're referring to, FERN, the yes. Foresight for Education? Education and Research and Network. Research Net and where does the Acceleration Studies Foundation fit in within that scheme? So FERN, uh, so ASF. Uh, is uh, sponsoring uh, FERN and a global directory of uh, foresight resources called globalforesight.org um, that lists people and organizations and resources that you should know about mm -hmm. in the space, conferences, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we sponsor a few other projects. So we're a foundation. We have a small amount of money and an endowment. Um, not enough to hire a full-time person if something happened to me. So I would love to be able to grow that. But uh, so our job is to really, the ASF job is really to try and uh, uh, make acceleration studies. Uh, this topic that we might call, some, some people call it transhumanist studies or singularity studies uh, is a term that uh, uh, Damien Broderick coined back in the 90s. Um, I think acceleration studies is probably the, the most general term for it. So that's the term we decided to use back in 03. And we want to see, you know, within 20 years, I'd love to see PhDs in acceleration studies. Um, I'm doing a master's program. I'm running, uh, building and running one called Emerging Technologies mm -hmm. at the University of Advancing Technology, right? And we've uh, just got our first students. So it's just gotten off the ground. It's very exciting. We're hiring our industry professors. Um, uh, really cool people who have backgrounds and and ideas in emerging technologies. I think hopefully, cross our fingers, we'll get James Hughes as one of our 
who runs the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, um, Nigel Cameron, who runs the Center for Policy on Emerging Technologies in Washington, D.C., uh, folks like that, people who really care about understanding emerging technologies and want to raise the level of our dialogue uh, with regard to uh, policy, foresight, uh, entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, since we've been talking about acceleration studies and acceleration in generally for a while now, let's let's see. Can you perhaps give us your best definition about the meaning of accelerating change? Well, so now we're getting to one of the other projects that ASF uh, um, sponsors uh, and runs, and that's uh, Evo Devo Universe. So we have a small community of systems theorists who try and understand change at the universal and subsystem levels. So if you want to think, if you're, if you're in foresight, you really have, as Peter Bishop says, you've got a whole bunch of theories of change. They may be implicit or explicit, and the best thing is to make them as explicit as possible. You have a theory of social change, technological change, physical change. You and I have high homology on our theories of physical change. We both have pretty good models of classical mechanics, and and, uh, we even have good models now, thanks to Einstein, bless his heart, of weird uh, change at the extremes of space-time, right? And um, so we've got all these interesting models. Uh, uh, and we have strong homology in the change models in the physical sciences. But as you scale up in terms of the emergences in the universe, physics, chemistry, biology, society, technology, well, those models get a little fuzzier, and we don't necessarily agree on those models. And But as futurists, as foresight professionals, we should try and make those as clear as possible and talk about them, Right. And then we'll improve them by critiquing them, getting them out and open. We'll build what are called schools of thought. So these are distinct, different opinions about the drivers of change and the futures, right? The predictable and the unpredictable futures of each of these different things. So if you look at climate change, there's probably uh, eight different schools of thought about what could be, what are the primary drivers and what it might look like in 20 years. The important thing is to get those all on the table and then see if you can get people at least agreeing that if we had this piece of research or this little bit of information, we could collapse those eight down to six, maybe five, right? And that, I think, is how progress really occurs. It really starts with a good change model. So Evo Devil Universe uh, is a community of about 50 of us who think that there's two fundamental processes, if you will, underlying all interesting complex systems, what are called complex adaptive systems or complexity studies. And uh, so systems theory is a branch of philosophy that looks at different systems and tries to see differences and similarities between them at the systems level. So it's basically a soft version of complexity studies, which is systems theory plus all the math, right? Mm -hmm. Systems complexity studies emerged out of systems theories in the uh, in the 80s, right? And there's some really nice books uh, you can read: Gleek's Chaos and uh, um, uh, Lewin's Complexity is probably the best single book on uh, the rise of the complexity sciences. So the way I look at change, you've got an evolutionary process underlying many complex systems. So it looks kind of like Darwin. Um, 
basically more chaos is happening over time, right? Mm -hmm. And chaotic attractors might be driving that. Okay, so there might be um, uh, deterministic chaos or other systems that create randomness. They shuffle things around. Mm -hmm. We like to say, oh, evolution shuffles things around. It doesn't know what's going to work. It, it throws everything at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah. Well, then uh, you can say on your right hand, you got a mirror image of that. And it's not creation of chaos in a complex system that's happening um, on your right hand. There's another process which takes chaos out of complex systems and hits a future target. And biologists think about development as the ideal example of that. A developing system hits a future target very predictably. You look at two identical twins and they've got the same basic genes. The way they were built is actually a very chaotic process. So everything about them that looks that matters at the molecular and in the, in the cellular level is actually chaotically different. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of variety that's been created. And then there was a selection process that happened to a competitive selection process to wire up the brain, for example. So the fingerprints, the retinal prints, the uh, brain wiring, the organ microstructure, the ideas in the heads of these two identical twins, they're different. Yeah. But look at them from across the room and they look the same, don't they? <laughs> hit, they hit puberty at the same time, which is a crazy, crazy uh, amount of future time from the molecules that are involved perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, if you separate them at birth, they're 60% psychologically correlated. They both go out and buy the big red trucks and the weird swing in the backyard because they've got all these attractors that are taking the chaos out of the system. So the question is, we can talk about stars that replicate to create more and more complex stars. Population 3, 2, 1 eventually led to our um, solar system type stars. Mm -hmm. Talk about replicating molecules that eventually led to a special type of molecule that chases its own tail with this Krebs cycle and we get cells. Talk about replicating cells, we can talk about replicating uh, multicellular organisms like us. We can talk about replicating ideas in brains. We can talk about replicating technologies that are always competing, trying to become the next great thing, right? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about similarities between them all that involve these evolutionary uh, variety generation processes and these um, optimization processes that hit a future target. So if you remember in science class, we talked a lot about variation. We talked a lot about selection. I'm sorry, evolution, our evolutionary studies classes in college. Variation and selection, we, didn't, we don't talk very much about optimization. Unless you're talking about development, you don't talk about optimization. I think the interesting question is, in this accelerating change we see in our universe, is the universe itself an evolutionary developmental process? If it is, then it's going to be creating lots of different variety and all these different civilizations that are all separated apart. But it's also going to have these features that are predictable. It's going to have heat death. It's going to have uh, dark energy with these acceler accelerating all of the informational islands apart from each other, the latest, right, from dark energy, right? breaking the universe up into these separate informational islands. It's also going to have things like accelerating complexification. Uh, if you look at life, the history of life, from a systems perspective, what has slowed down that acceleration? There's very few things. It looks like it seems to be 
uh, not just an evolutionary process, but also a developmental one. So there's some kind of an optimization. So when you talk about development, you use words that are a bit of a no-no in most scientific vocabularies. Use words like progress, uh, hierarchy, directionality, right? And I would add uh, complexification. Kurzweil likes to say the universe looks like it's conserving intelligence. I, I agree with him. The universe looks like it's conserving and accelerating these local islands of intelligence. And I think it's making those local islands more and more resilient the more complex they get. And resilient means you could chop off one of the branches, but the thing has so many more branches, the more complex it gets, you can't knock the tree down. Uh-huh. I disagree with many of my futurist friends. I'm a member of the Lifeboat Foundation, which is looking for existential threats. Where I disagree with many of my futurist friends is I see very few, very, very few of those. And the more complex society gets, the less of those there seem to be. The more redundancy, the more ability for us to back up our intelligence in all these ways that, you know, you're post-biological, you're going to laugh at a gamma ray burst that comes at you. I mean, there's nothing that can take you out the more complex, the further you go into inner space. And that's really interesting. Why do we have a physics that seems to be biased to accelerating intelligence, accelerating complexification, and I'm going to add on accelerating resiliency or immunity? There's these immune systems that kind of come out of the system the more complex it gets. And the best book that I recommend on that would be Better Angels of Our Nature by Pinker. He's talking about how violence is collapsing as a function of social complexity. We're civilizing ourselves. How is that? I don't think that's just evolutionary. I think it's developmental. Yeah, uh, I am very much also uh, hoping that's the case, though we still have a long way to go (laughs) before I think we could. We sure do. And I'm not saying that we won't have lots of catastrophes and pain along the way. Yeah. I think we have a huge moral responsibility to minimize the catastrophes and pain. Mm -hmm. So to take an old trope, if the, uh, you know, old futurist trope, if if Hitler had won, uh, um, you know, World War II and eventually end up, you know, conquering the world, um, we we still would have had the singularity. And, uh, you know, uh, it would have gotten completely, I believe, completely outside of his and all other human control and it'll develop its own set of ethics. But would we want that kind of a, of a transition to, to greater than human intelligence? No, right? Virtually everyone on the planet would think of that as a horrific transition. So the, there are certain things that, uh, uh, certain destinies that seem to be developmental, but the evolutionary pathway we take is fully within our control and our, our moral responsibility. That's a very optimistic uh, sort of way of looking at things, and, and I really enjoy it. Uh, but let me just ask you here to bring in another one of your concepts, which is the idea of STEM compression. You briefly touched on inner space and, and your views and how they are different. Perhaps you could elaborate a little more about the meaning of uh, STEM compression, the move towards simplicity rather than complexity, and your ideas of going towards inner space. Uh, or what you said in one of your previous interview, density is destiny. Yes, our destiny is density. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. To try and do that in a you know a very simple way, <laughs> I think we want to we want to look at um, the evolution. We want to look at the evolutionary development 
of complexity. And by the way, if someone uses the phrase evolutionary development, they're basically being humble and saying, I don't know if it's evolution or development. And you'll see a few really wonderful books out there written by some smart people who they hedge their bets. <laughs> so is it evolution? Is it this tree-like variation generating and selectionist process? Is it development, this tune process that's hitting us, hitting a future target? Uh, or is it uh, a mix of the two? In your body, you've only got maybe 3% of your genes are developmental, and the rest are all, uh, they're going to hit that future target, right? The so-called developmental genetic toolkit. All the rest of the genes in your body, they're, they're trying to recombine and create variety as fast as they can. So you've got sex, you've got retroviruses jumping in your body, having sex with humans, passing, uh, passing their own genes to, you know, within the population. There's so many ways... DNA likes to evolve, but evolution isn't the only story. The DNA also, in any complex system, has to have a developmental framework that allows the cycle to continue. So stem compression, I would argue, is a part of this cycle. It's a part of this process where the universe figures out how to package up its intelligence. So where do we start? Let's start in a really uh, fun way, the way I saw it originally, which is started looking at the evolution of complexity when I was in high school and I was flipping through some National Geo magazines and it's like 10th grade or something and and it occurred to me wow well these galaxies emerged and but then the next really interesting thing were these replicating suns that emerged within the galaxies within small spaces of the galaxies so if you're looking at a history of complexification, uh, the place in which um, all, the, all the cool stuff was happening became a much smaller subset of the galaxy space. And then we learned that uh, um, if you wanted to create complex chemistries, you couldn't be too close to the center because there's too much radiation. You couldn't be too far away on the edge of the galaxy because there's not enough um, um, metallicity. So you, there's this, what, what, what was later described as the galactic, galactic habitable zone, which is this kind of narrow ring around each of these galaxies out there where all the interesting complex chemical activities are going to be occurring. Now, I've oversimplified that. Uh, there's intermolecular clouds that uh, also have this really interesting chemical evolution going on earlier on, but... If you want to add on top of that chemical evolution, these hydrological and geological cycles, um, things like plate tectonics, it recycles the carbon, these um, um, water nitrogen cycles. Well, you got to have these special planets with liquid water that are, now we, again, we notice they're around these special stars, these population one stars that have been building, building out the periodic table through all these replications. Once you get carbon, enough of these uh, of these heavy elements, then all the really interesting things happening on these very special planets that are in a special zone around their stars. So the stars are, you know, carbon plus stars that have all these uh, heavy metals in their in their rocky core planets, and now it's this very special space on the surface of these planets where all the interesting stuff is happening. And then you get these replicating uh, bacteria, right? your first cells, and those guys are going um, miles deep into the crust, the autolithotrophic bacteria. They're probably, as spores, skipping out onto all of these local planets 
So bacteria have probably been vastly farther range than I believe flesh and blood humans are ever going to go. And so then the really interesting, but we went out there and we could come back. They couldn't do that. <laughs> so there's some advantages to intelligence. But then the humans come out and we go out of Africa and you go, aha, John, that's going the wrong way. Humans went out from one place. Yeah, that's true, but it's what I call the next adjacent expansion. So we expanded into the next adjacent space, which is this special subset of the humans of, of the living space that was particularly habitable to humans. And we think of this as the grand area era of discovery, but we're really just colonizing a tiny piece of the space that all these living things did before us. And then we develop, what do we do? Cities. Look at these points of light, these 500 points of light that are now the leading edges of change on the planet. As Glazer in Triumph of the City says, you know, 3% of Americans living in 90, or 97% of Americans living in 3% of its space, right? We want to get together, huddle together, and create the next level of complexity, which are these special uh, uh, technologies that we're using to connect each other and to compute and to externalize, as Vinji would say, our cognition into them. And if you look at that, you don't even have to think about, you know, big computers going to little tiny ones, but that's another part of it. What you really see is you think, wait a minute, uh, this acceleration seems to be kind of driven by intelligence figuring out how to use less slices of space-time and smaller quantities of matter energy. And wherever it can figure out how to do that using less and more efficiently, so efficiency and density both go up, the next level of emergence occurs. And so I called this space-time energy-matter efficiency and space-time energy-matter density trend that we see. I call, you put the two together and I call that stem compression because it's a nice general term we can use. We, in our heads, we think, yeah, everything is kind of compressing itself. And if you take that to the extreme, as I've done in my paper, Evo Devil Universe, with a question mark after it, because these are speculations, of course, uh, a black hole is the, is the extreme. And Seth Lloyd in 2000 said, that's the ultimate computer. That's the, the most efficient most advanced computer we can imagine is something that's computing on the surface of the event horizon of a black hole. And that's weird because there's trillions of black holes in our universe, maybe hundreds of trillions. So does that mean that uh, some of those are advanced civilizations? Does that mean that uh, that's where we go? Or do we maybe go into hyperspace, maybe not to a black hole, we just kind of leave our universe. We just get so small. And would that be a possible solution to Fermi's paradox? And I thought about that for a moment and I realized, well, that would only be a solution if there was some reason why you wouldn't want to comp uh, send out all the cool information that you learned on your way into the hole. And that's when it kind of popped into my head and I realized, well, sure, life doesn't do that. Life doesn't send out one-way information and wherever it does, it reduces the complexity of the system. Life always uses two-way information for evolutionary complexity construction. We only send out one-way messages for developmental uh, processes, where we're, you know, we're setting the price of beets in Siberia from Moscow. That's one-way developmental control. Well, what happened to that versus the two-way market setting the price of beets locally? Those systems just get weeded out. What happened to the all the monocultures that, uh, and crops that led to the Irish potato famine. 
or the colony collapse disorder we're having in bees now because there's only a few variety of monoculture bees. Whenever we create these monocultures, these colonial systems, and we take the variation out of the system, we it's ripe for catastrophe. So I believe there's ethical injunctions that are going to keep advanced civilizations from sending out one-way messages because if they're all going down their own little holes and they're all going to meet each other immediately afterward, right? which uh, there's lots of arguments, wormholes, we, we go into them all for how that might happen. If the physics turn out to be like that, then we wouldn't send out these one-way messages. We'd only have two-way communications. And if there's light years of distance between all the intelligent civilizations, as you, as you can well imagine, you only get a few of those back and forth before you go down into your, into your inner space world, right? So I published a paper called The Transcension Hypothesis, uh, an act to Astronautica last year, which basically makes these arguments that, uh, you know, we don't know, but it looks like one really interesting argument for why we don't get advanced uh, intelligence um, going and doing expansion, which was the original idea. Maybe it goes to transcension. Mm -hmm. How old is that original idea? Because it seems to me that uh, it is kind of really the opposite of what people such as Carl Sagan were talking about. I it mean, is. He was arguing that our destiny is to basically conquer the universe via the space program and so on. Yeah. And you're arguing for the exact opposite. Yes. So, so how old is the idea and why did people such as Carl Sagan seem to have missed that idea if it was present at their time? Uh, it wasn't present that I know of. Yeah. I, 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 I hate to, to say that I coined it because I don't know that I did. Um, but um, I haven't been able to find um, anybody else out there who states it in a very um, complex way, even simple ways. I found a few people. Um, turns out David Pierce and I kind of co-came to the idea independently. Mm -hmm. um, he's an interesting transhumanist that you may have interviewed. Uh, great guy. Not yet. Uh, and pardon? Okay. And John Barrow came independently to something, he calls it the Barrow scale, um, rather than wonderful, you know, um, physicist, uh, science writer, philosopher. Um, you've heard of the Kardashev scale, which is the idea that we have increasing outer expansionist kind of use of energy. Well, if this energy efficiency and density goes up, that's all out the window. Um, and so you need a different scale for really trying to figure out measure crudely measure level of complexity of a civilization and the barrel scale is how small down can you manipulate matter energy space and time how close to the Planck scale can you get and in his book impossibility the limits of science he lays out the barrel scale and uh, my colleague Clement Vidal at the Abu Dhabi universe uh, community one of the 50 scholars that I mentioned uh, the co-founder with me of the community he found it um, maybe five years ago, we found it in this in impossibility, which I had on my shelf. I just hadn't read it deeply enough to find the Barrow scale. So now Clement and I basically champion the Barrow scale. Whenever anybody talks about Kardashev, we say, "Poof! Here's the real scale. Take a look. <laughs> how deeply, how far we can manipulate the matter." And it's not just that that creates the acceleration of complexity; that creates the resiliency too. We become badass, indestructible. Uh, seeds, if you will, packaging up all the interesting information. Now, notice how I went to this biological phrase, seed, 
Mm-hmm. Are all these accelerating intelligences basically packaging up all the things they've learned evolutionarily? Like when you and I create a, a new uh, child, we try and package all of our best ideas into the child, or when a plant creates a seed? Mm-hmm. Is that really what's going on here? Is this all this acceleration kind of a lead up to replication? Well, I would argue that it might be. And uh, Lee Smolin, in his book, The Life of the Cosmos, published a, um, a whole concept called cosmological natural selection, which argues that every single one of those black holes you see out there may be a very primitive replicating seed that creates very simple bacteria-like universes. And so black holes themselves may be uh, these devices that reassort the parameters, the fundamental physical parameters that create the new universe. And so a special subclass of those could be black holes that have used a little bit of intelligence on their way in to reorganize the parameters. Now, I'm not talking about a world like biocosm, which my colleague James Gardner has talked about, where our universe may have been engineered by previous intelligences. I'm talking about something different. I'm saying there's similarities, and I love James, and he's got some brilliant insights in that book, but what I'm arguing is there may be a bunch of genes that drive this replication, and any intelligence that emerges within it has as much ability to mess with those genes as you and I have to mess with our own developmental genes. At every particular level, the developmental toolkit changes a tiny bit, but not much. Mostly what you and I have ability to change is the things that we do, our evolutionary choices, the evolutionary nature of our environment. We can't fix, we can't mess with the development very much. So I would argue that it's, this is a this is a concept that's often called self-organization. So the intelligence of our universe may be very largely self-organized through multiple cycles. We add our creativity to it. We tweak it. We do some things that we design. But as you know, people who talk about design and how we are going to design a particular future top-down, they're all just throwing out experiments using their weak rationality that the environment is going to decide whether or not they actually fit with the way the thing actually works, right? Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you this then and see if it fits with your idea. First of all, I have to say that I was totally unaware of that fascinating idea before I started doing a little bit of background research on you. And I find it, as I said, totally fascinating. Um, even Thanks. though it's totally the opposite of, of the, the previous ideas that I've been fascinated before and still am, such as Carl Sagan's, you know, Ideas, that's but a sign of great. That's a sign of, uh, of uh, I would say, great adaptability, Nicola. When you can hold in your head the competing schools of thought, <laughs> argue with yourself over them, and not, not commit to any one of them until the data comes in. That's where we want to be. We want our brains to be working like this tree here, right? And and that's what this podcast, by the way, has been and is all about: bringing in a variety of people. Some are pro, some are con the singularity and everybody has a very unique perspective on technology on accelerating change on the the universe if you will so that's what it's all about too and that's why my name is Socrates because I I am very open-minded to all of those ideas lovely uh, but let me um, bring in this uh, Michio Kaku recently went on big thing to say that Moore's law is going to collapse within the decade Okay. Simply, simply because, and I actually just posted uh, his seven-minute video on singularityweblog.com, and he talks there about how, you know, we're leading, uh, reaching the limits of silicon, but also we're reaching the limits of physics uh, as 
described by the laws of physics and thermodynamics and, and how, for example, the smaller we get, the bigger problem we have with issues such as leakage or heat um, and how, for example, once you get to the really small uh, level, uh, which we are going to reach within a decade, you start having problems such as the Heisenberg principle for an uncertainty, uh, according to which you don't know where that electron or that particle is located. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is this, how is that impact or does it impact on your theory of inner space and sort of, it sounds, yours sounds almost like an infinite density, meaning infinitely well, able it, to zoom it in. Oh, it's not infinite. No, uh, we or, know physics tells us there's a Planck scale. Yeah, but still, we're very far away. Above it right now, we're quite a long ways away from it. But precisely my point. So from that point of view, I say infinite because we're very far away from it. Yes, but we're also accelerating in our ability to um, uh, jump into these lower scales. So, so from one perspective, so there's been a couple of good papers by uh, Lawrence Krauss and um, I think it might have been Seth Lloyd who did the other paper that argued how long could this, if Moore's law is a universal type of a process, how long could this exponentiation continue before we get to fundamental limits? And uh, they both came up with something in the order of hundreds of years, I think 250 to 600 years from now. Precisely, yeah. That's why I'm so shocked when Michio Kaku goes on the record to say something so different. Well, I don't think that he necessarily is. You know, Michio is a, um, he's an entertainer. He, he loves to be a provocateur and get you thinking. And I think he's right. If you frame the problem in certain ways, he is right. Uh, we we're already hitting all of these limits in terms of miniaturization on the chips. That's why we've gone to multi-core chips, because the laptop would cook you, would cook your lap. It'd be too hot. So we've built these multi-core chips, but we don't know how to program for them because they're parallel. So we add more parallelism and it starts to look more like a living system, but it's taking us to a new, more biologically inspired regime that we don't really understand because it's more bottom up than top down. So now let's look at IBM Synapse chip, which has got what, 64,000 unique cores, and you can program them from the top down and from the bottom up. They can discover their own evolutionary solutions. Well, that's the kind of system that can now scale and its own Moore's law and double, you can double and double and double every six months or 18 months, the number of, uh, of uh, chips that you have in a um, massively parallel evolvable hardware system. And guess what? You couldn't do that while the chips were in their magic shrinking game. So amen, Michio, thank you. Let's hope that Moore's law, as he's describing it, stops within, within 10 years. I wish it would stop this year because only then does it become economically possible for massively parallel, biologically inspired machines to emerge. A guy named Danny Hillis tried to create one in 1984, 64,000 processors, the connection machine. It was obsolete by the time he built it. That's no longer true when chips stop their magic shrinking game. Now we have to do the harder work of emulating biology, create these systems that figure out their own solutions from the bottom up. There's 30 to 40,000 people that go to the genetically, genetic and engineering, genetic engineering, sorry, gecko, um, the gecko conference, uh, genetic and evolutionary computation conference. 
30,000 people that try and program in this bottom-up way. If I'm right, when these chips finish their magic shrinking game, we're going to see millions of people uh, programming this way. You want a singularity to emerge? I want you to imagine a block-sized computer built of evolvable hardware, and there's flocks of graduate students playing with this thing, looking for interesting emergences, and they're not programming it. This thing is building itself from the bottom up and trying things out. And something works a little better than others, you reconfigure it, uh, you reconfigure the other ones to become more like that one, and then you, re, uh, you know, reconfigurable logic, you just do it through the electrons, and then you uh, shuffle the parameters. Those things are still millions fold faster than this thing, aren't they? I don't need to worry about Heisenberg uncertainty. My brain has figured out how to create all this computation on a level much above that and deal with it and, 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 and to do it even with, with, even with the problems of Heisenberg uncertainty. Well, we're gonna do that in this electronic space uh, just as well. And uh, will we get down into that uh, femto technology space? Was it just two weeks ago that humans, fat-fingered 20th century you know, primates here, right? Communicated through solid earth with neutrinos? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? Was it just last month that we figured out how to isolate um, quantum computation at the macro scale with these, with these entangled quantum dots for the first time, the noise problem uh, uh, went away, right? What? Uh, it may not be humans that figure out how to create massive quantum computers, but uh, someone's going to. And I think the killer app for those is already obvious. If you talk to anybody who's deep in quantum computing, the killer app for quantum computing is simulating quantum processes. It's creating incredibly, it's final, this is how you solve the protein folding problem of creating, of in finite time, understanding how all these things work at the molecular scale, right? molecular dynamics. Well, you do it all in quantum computing. And is that going to allow us to discover room temperature superconductivity or any of these other juicy nuggets that are sitting out there waiting for some serious computation to be thrown at them? Absolutely. So I am a big believer in femtotechnology. Um, I imagine that um, Drexler, who may have been the first to coin it in Engines of Creation, his new book, Radical Abundance, which probably comes out in 2013, you can go to his website, Meta, Meta Modern, I think it is, or something like that. But and you can just Google Radical Abundance Drexler, and you can get on his list for an advance notice of this book. He's probably going to talk about that. You know, he's he's taking Peter Diamandis's perspective and adding the nanotech to it, and saying, yeah, it's not just abundance; it's radical abundance. <laughs> and so, yes, I can see all kinds of short-term limits that push us in another direction. But uh, boy, there is so much uh, benefit that comes when we do this, what I call not vertical exponentiation of Moore's law, but horizontal exponentiation and fit more and more and more things into the hardware. This is what made the iPhone such an amazing advance, as my friend Alex Wisner Gross said. People didn't believe that they could take their OS 10 and put it in a computer and still have a reasonable battery life. So what did they do? They put the operating system into chips. Nobody thought they'd do that. But you do this horizontal exponentiation where the, the hardware takes over, another level of stem compression. 
And the efficiencies now allow you to run, uh, you know, an incredible operating system with a tiny little battery. And so I think that's, you know, the larger story of acceleration is always there. It's, it's hard to see uh, in the short term. That's a, an absolutely fascinating discussion, John. And um, I have to say I'm really enjoying it because I've learned so much for the past one hour with you. It's, it's hard to begin even to, to describe. And I, I'll take some time to digest it, too. Well, I'm glad it was useful. <laughs> but uh, it's been... have to do another one sometime. Absolutely, yes. It's been almost an hour since we, we began, so uh, we would perhaps reconvene at a later point. Uh, let me ask you my last two questions that I always ask before we close the interviews. And the first one is, where can people go and find more about you and your work? Uh, well, let's see. I have a, a YouTube channel now. I think it's John M. Smart. Um, and... Uh, I've got 38 subscribers. I'd love you to be the 39th. Um, so I'm posting my videos there. Um, and you can find it through my blog, eversmarterworld.com. Um, that's a wonderful phrase my uh, friend Alex Lightman coined back in the early 2000s. And uh, I agree. It's a, This world just becoming smarter and smarter, and it's not going to slow down. So eversmarterworld.com is my blog. And um, you, my uh, Twitter and uh, Google Plus, where I spend most of my uh, social networking short posts, um, and um, my YouTube channel are all linkable through that. So I would go to eversmarterworld.com and maybe become one of my followers on my blog, too. I think I've got six followers there. <laughs> so all pretty recent stuff. But then, um, of course, my older websites are um, accelerating.org, which is the nonprofit's website, and uh, accelerationwatch.com is my original website. It used to be called Singularity Watch, but I realized, no, we're not really watching the singularity. We're watching the acceleration. So yeah. you can find some general thoughts about the singularity there. Um, it might be useful, uh, useful to you. And uh, I guess that's it. So, so let's, let's see how we can finish our interview with um, a single message or perhaps the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from you today. Well, if I was to boil all this stuff down um, to kind of one thing that really has maybe meaning for all of us is that um, accelerating change is not going to slow down. Um, now, there could be a pandemic. There could be um, some serious bad things that would happen, but very, very uh, rapidly afterwards, our immune systems would get better. We would respond to those. Um, we have Draco, if you Google D-R-A-C-O. We already have uh, in incredible advances uh, in uh, um, our understanding of, of um, how to change our molecular environment to be... To be uh, um, inhospitable to simple organisms like bacteria and viruses. And we're going to figure out how to do that much better, create vaccines, uh, you know, overnight for them, have sensors distributed everywhere. We haven't done it because we just aren't planning enough. We aren't thinking in enough foresighted way, but get a few more of these micro pandemics going and you're going to see that happen. Um, so all the bad things that you think could happen, we have incredible solutions for them out there. Um, as Peter says, uh, we're going to solve global energy, global food, global water, 
uh, global population. We've got all these technological solutions. The question is, are we going to do it when we see the light in advance proactively, or are we going to change only when we feel the heat and the pain? And that's the real choice. So the world is getting better at a much faster rate. There's all these amazing um, examples of good strategies out there. If you start networking with other people that are uh, talking about those, you can find them, you can start to more effectively use them. You can get away from this reactionist model of, you know, all oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I can't do anything about it. You can start talking about the things that you can create. You and I can be digital activists and we can recognize how fast this stuff is going and get excited about it. We can get other people using the smallest and best stuff. You know, I've got a, I've got a, um, an ultra book here, uh -huh. right? This is basically an iPad, uh, in, in weight, but it's got a laptop. Uh -huh. Or sorry, it's got a full keyboard. Yeah. We can buy these things. Why? Because that's going to make them smarter and faster rather than putting off the decisions. Oh, I don't need one of those. Well, yeah, I want one of these things small enough that I can wear. When Google Glasses come out in December, hope, you know, cross our fingers, you can be the, one of the first guys to get those. You want these things small as possible, built in, you know, wearable. Um, uh, you want the ambient intelligence around you because that's the cage. That's the environment in which all the acceleration occurs. And when we start to recognize that, we can start pushing for the kinds of changes on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, the choices that we make that will uh, create that kind of a future. John Smart, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicole.